0: That's always what I'm waiting for, right there. <laughs> that tells me I can start. How is everyone this morning? Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> pretty good as well. Like to welcome our visitors from the sister church in Sydney. We have John and Lynn Tovaca. If you guys could stand up, and we'll say a big hello to you guys. Good to have you guys here. Welcome. Just scouting out the land, I assume, in, 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 in hopes of a longer-term vision for coming to New Zealand. We appreciate that. We appreciate... It is a countdown to the silly season, as the Nesbits have mentioned, and also for us, the Hope Volunteer Corps. So about 15 days until it gets real, or if you're Duncan and Mary, it's already been real, and we appreciate all their work, and it's coming up soon. It's going to be awesome. We'll have 40 people descending to New Zealand in the next 15 days for about 12 days helping out. That's going to be fantastic. And then, of course, last week was our campus and professional service, the cat ministry. Fantastic job. They knocked it out of the park. Great job on all fronts. I thought Cress and Gillen both did a phenomenal job of preaching the word. Uh, Cress did a great job, and Gillen, where's Gillen? Oh, it's too soon, too soon, too soon. <laughs> Gillen's over in Australia. He's he's over there, but we love him. And amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 26. We're continuing our journey of the book of Acts and coming to a close as we've only have two chapters left. That's, that's awesome. It's been a long time of study, but it's been very fruitful. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, the idea of light... There's a thread throughout. So for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, the very first thing created, God says, let there be light. Very first page of the Bible, very first thing that's created. If you turn to the last page of the Bible or the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, there's a passage that says, there'll be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will be the light. And so from beginning to end, there's this idea that light is created in the beginning. At the end, there's no need for any body in the heavens to create it because God himself is light. And in between those two, from book cover to book cover, the idea kind of permeates the Bible. And so this morning, we'll look at this message of light as Paul continues to defend himself and really explore what it means to have a message of light. Let's pray together and then start reading in Acts chapter 26. Father, we are grateful to come before you and your word and your spirit that we know that um, this is something very sacred in the old Testament, that the the mind of a Jew knew that when they came to the temple or the tabernacle, it was something serious and sacred. And it's likewise today when we, when we are filled with your spirit, we are sacred space. And when we come here, it's something very special that happens and help us be aware of that and uh, be in reverence of you and your spirit and your Holy word and help us to understand it. So that we can focus more clearly on Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Starting in Acts chapter 26, we're going to read this chapter and talk about three concepts this morning pertaining to the message of light. Beginning in Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me Patiently, Agrippa has grown up, his grandfather is Herod the Great, who's in the Gospels, you'll see all the Herods, but he's very, very familiar with all the Jewish customs and controversies. And so Paul feels like, you know what's going on here. I feel fortunate to be able to present this case to you. And in verse four, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life, in my own country, and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. And can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible? That God raises the dead. In other words, th- th- these guys know me. I've grown up with them. I'm not, I'm not causing a big stir. I'm just saying what the Bible has said all along. That Jesus would raise from the dead. In verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, and cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down to foreign cities. And we know that even in the persecution that occurred afterwards, it was hard to get Christians to not say Jesus is Lord. And that's what Paul is doing. Jesus is not Lord. He's hunting people down trying to get them to confess that. In verse 12, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. He's the only one that hears it. His companions see this thing happen, but are not really keen on understanding what's going on. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. You you have to imagine Paul's hesitation and his fright to come face to face with the very person he's persecuting. And being told, I want you to get up and stand on your feet. Who knows what is about to happen? I'm sure he's fearing for his life, but instead he says, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant. And as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen—that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. "You're out of your mind, Paul!" he shouted. "Your great learning is driving you insane." Not insane. Most excellent, Festus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, I appreciate your willingness to disrupt this defense, but the king is familiar with these things. Let me continue to speak to the king. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, now you just kind of imagine the scene here. They're, they're trying to question Paul to figure out what is, what is going on. He's, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. The boldness, you can sense it and feel it. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? One of the three times Christian is used and it's in a negative context here. You you think that we're trying to get information from you and you're trying to use this as an opportunity to share about the gospel? Do you think you're really going to convert me? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor, Bernice and those sitting with him, after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar well what's going on here Paul is still defending himself against the Jewish accusations and finally he says I, I, I just appeal to Caesar if you have something to accuse me of let's take it to the top guy right and so nobody can really find anything that sticks to Paul because if they send him to Rome it's basically hey this guy's caused a lot of trouble but we're not sure why they don't want to send that kind of prisoner to Rome because they get the rope well then I don't want to deal with it what's the charge what is he being charged with? And that's, so Festus says, man, I don't really have anything to say. King Agrippa, why don't you hear him? And then why don't you send a letter to Rome, to Caesar, so that I can have some information, so we can tell what's really going on. And they hear it and they say, I got nothing. He could have been set free. And so this is the context, and and Paul uses it as a platform once again to preach the gospel. It's the third time his conversion will be talked about with varying details, but he really uses it to promote the message of light. First point this morning is Jesus is the light. In verse 23 of our passage, after Paul is is talking to the king, he references, hey, I'm just saying what's already been said, that the Messiah would suffer And as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, or if you're not familiar, the prophets often talked about this light. that would appear on the scene at some point to the Jews and eventually to all nations. Isaiah was kind of a big proponent of this. In Isaiah 42, in verse... Six or nine or three, one of those. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light. To the Gentile. This is hundreds of years before Jesus arrives on the scene to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This is when Isaiah is pointing forward and saying, at some point, there's going to be a figure, a servant. And if you read Isaiah 42, it's epic. It talks about Jesus. He's stirred up with zeal, he's cloaked with the Spirit, he's righteous, he's not going to falter, and he comes and he's a light. To the world. That's what Isaiah 42 is talking about. When Luke, the author of Luke, obviously, but also the author of Acts, introduces Jesus in the temple courts. There's a character named Simeon. And he comes to see Jesus in the temple courts when he's first born. And he holds him and he lifts him up. And here's what he says when he sees Jesus. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What's the connection? A prophecy made about a light. Hundreds of years ago, Simeon, holding Jesus, says, I can go in peace now. I've seen the light, which has been referred to in Isaiah. Even more specifically, Isaiah chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has Dawned. That's Isaiah chapter nine, hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. Matthew chapter four records this and connects it to that very same passage. Jesus left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah: "Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has." Dawned. Paul, in front of Agrippa. I'm just trying to bring this message of light. That's all I'm doing. There's nothing phony or fishy about it. I'm just bringing this message of light. And his his key point is that if you want to see light, if you want to see truth, it's all through Jesus. All of it is through Jesus. It's not coincidence that when Jesus arrives, thousands of angels come and what are they cloaked in light? What leads the wise men to eventually find Jesus? A star, this bright, shining light. I mean, it's like over and over again, but it's all pointing to Jesus as the light of the world. Paul's no different. I'm just trying to bring you guys the message of light. What does this mean for us today? It means there needs to be more emphasis on Jesus. That's pretty simple, but our culture has shifted to more emphasis on man. What do you think? What do I think? What do we think? Now that's helpful to some degree, but who cares? What does Jesus think? Come on. Because he is the light. And if you're familiar with history and philosophy, there was a big emphasis on God, authority, scriptures. And then when the enlightenment happens, interesting, it's called the enlightenment. But what happened is they said, let's place more emphasis on human reason. Because we can figure things out on our own. The philosopher Kant said, have courage to use your own reason. And you, there's this shift that starts to happen and things start to spiral and eventually French Revolution happens because it's all about, let's, let's deal, let's get away with this authority. But it happened because let's be enlightened, but it was really, let's focus on our own minds instead of the gospel. And, and, and here Paul and all along the Bible is always saying, no, it's all about Jesus. In some sense, our culture has replaced what the Bible thinks with what we think. Well, what do you think? What I, it's about what Jesus says in his word. It also means today that, that we can't emphasize other things as alternatives to Jesus. Yeah. That's what the culture does. You see that in John chapter 4, the woman on the well is trying to gain satisfaction through relationships. She thinks that will satisfy. Jesus comes, has a conversation. She says, man, this guy told me everything I ever did. She goes back and tells her whole town. But now she realized relationships were what I thought would give me satisfaction. But here's what really gives me satisfaction. The light of the world. And our culture is very savvy and say, well, what about this and what about that? That, that will, if you pursue uh, relevance, it's about being relevant. Let me stay relevant on social media. Let me post whatever. I can barely post one Instagram a week. But people post hundreds a day to stay relevant. But the message of light is the relevance is found in Jesus. That's social media. Or anything else for that matter. Your importance, your dreams, your relationships. Everything that's an alternative to trying to find satisfaction outside of Jesus will end in heartache. It will always end in heartache. That's why Paul saying, Jesus is the light. Focus on Jesus. For anybody, Christian or non-Christian, that wants to see truth, it's only found in Jesus. And we need to emphasize Jesus more, us less. He is the message of light. Secondly, turning from darkness to light. Look at verse 17 and 18. Because this, this is Jesus' words. We don't know if this was directly to Paul from Jesus or from Jesus to Ananias to Paul. Could be both because Ananias comes and commissions Paul as well in Acts chapter 22. But in, in this verse 17 and 18, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles I am sending you to them. And here's a crystal clear mission from Jesus to Paul. Verse 18. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus says, here's your mission. Open people's eyes, turn them from darkness to light, power of Satan to God. Now, in the parallel, in verse 20, as Paul makes his defense... He doesn't say, so I went and opened people's eyes and turned them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God so they would receive forgiveness. He captures that, the essence of that thought in verse 20 by simply saying, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and to Judea, and to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds and so these two thoughts are parallel Jesus says I want you to go open people's eyes and turn them from darkness to light and Satan to God and, and Paul says that, that, that's what Jesus told me so King Agrippa that's what I did I went and preached they should repent turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God that's repentance alright and if, if you're not familiar with it here it is once more metanoia the Greek word for repentance A combination of meta and noia. Meta means after. Metaphysics. After physics. Metamorphosis. After change. Peter's butterfly. Right? You're a butterfly now. Whatever he said. But after, that's what it is. Noia means mind. Noose. Paranoia. Abnormal mindset. Alright, so metanoia is after Mind. After mind change, after mindset, your mind changes after you see something. Once your eyes are open and when your mind changes and when your mind gets blown, your behavior starts to change as well. But that's what Paul is saying. It's like, I went and I tried to turn people, I tried to teach them to repent, to open their eyes. And that meant opening their eyes to the fact that they were under Satan's stronghold. That's what he's saying. To turn from the power of Satan to God. And this is very evident in Paul's life. In verse 19 of chapter 26, he says this, and he said it several times. I was convinced. This is not a man who's persuaded by other people easily or weak-willed. He says, I was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That was my mind. That was the way I thought. And the action was I went from town to town and I chased and I hunted people down and I screamed and I tried to persecute. My mind and my actions were connected. That's what I was convinced of. And and then Paul literally gets blinded by the light and sees Jesus. And after, in verse 20, he says to King Agrippa, hey, that's the way I used to think. That's the way I used to act. But after... My mind, after repentance, metanoia, after I saw Jesus, I was not disobedient to the vision. I went where he told me to go, and I did what he told me to do. Later on, as Paul writes to Timothy, he's even more clear in chapter 1, verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy... Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What's he saying? Look, I looked at my previous thought life and it was ignorant. I didn't, know, I didn't know the truth. And I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And I had to admit I was wrong. In order to repent and really follow Jesus. My actions were rooted in ignorance. And my lifestyle followed. That's important, right? If you've ever read books about changing, here's, a, here's one you can read that's quite comical. Mistakes were made, but not by me. And it feels, feels something funny about the human condition, right? It's, it's hard to admit you're wrong. That's right. yeah. Even when it's crystal clear. Yeah. We're racing in the field the other day with our kids and letting them all race. All three of them and then seeing who's the fastest and we could clearly see who's the fastest, but one of them refused to admit, even though we both saw it and it's like, no, this one won. No, I think I won. We, we both saw it. <laughs> it's hard. It's embedded. It's hard to admit we're wrong. I mean, we cling to old ways of doing things, right? Even when they don't make sense, even when there's better, healthier, smarter options. Look, just in case you still do this, hiding money under the mattress is not good. All right? People did this. They surveyed. People hid money under the mattress, gains no interest. It's vulnerable to being robbed, but they still did it. Just, no, I, I'm, this is the way I'm going to do it. Put it in the bank, in the savings account for a lease and gain a little bit, a tiny bit of interest. Right? But there's this, there's this refusal to admit we're wrong. Now, it's comical initially, right? But in the long run, it's destructive. Yeah, that's right. In essence, that's what repentance is. It's, it's saying on, the way I think currently and the result of that is wrong. It's ignorant and I, I, I got to have my eyes open. Now that doesn't mean every single thought that comes through your mind, you have to double question, is is this wrong or is this right? I just mean at its core, at its essence, are you open to the potential of being wrong about the way you think? So that you can repent. That's what Paul is saying. I went and I tried to do that. If you want to become a Christian, there has to be a point where you say, the way I think and the result of that is wrong. If you think there's a, if you think, uh, if you hold on to it, it won't work. Repentance means open your eyes and and see that the way you're living is not working. Admitting that what you're really looking for is found in Jesus, not what other alternative you're pursuing. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I'd, I'd encourage you to examine your life and say, is it really working? What I'm doing, is it really working? Is it really bringing genuine satisfaction? Because the woman at the well experienced the same thing and she didn't get it until she met Jesus. Because if you follow the flow of the passage, your eyes get opened, you turn from darkness in order to be forgiven. Not you get forgiven and then your mind gets opened. That's important. You have to have your mind open by the gospel message. And and, and as we age spiritually, spiritually, we accumulate a lot of knowledge. Our character grows. We gain a lot of experience. But if you're like me, I still gravitate toward the idea that I'm right. Right? And so we always have to have some mechanism to check that. We have to have some kind of built-in mechanism to make sure we're constantly a church that's repenting. Which means I need to have someone in my life to say, hey, I'm not sure that was the best avenue to do that. And it means you need to have someone in your life to say, I'm not sure that was the best way to think about that. Because if you don't, you can spiral out of control. You're hiding money under the mattress. And it's not going to work. And and that kind of mechanism doesn't happen on Sunday morning necessarily. This is great. We come to church to worship God, take communion, sing songs, etc. But this happens in small community. In our relationships. When you catch people in their unguarded moments and hear what they really think. That's when true community happens and that's when repentance can really happen. When you see the way people think and you see the way people live. When is the last time you personally called someone to repent? I know it's scary. I know it's fearful. I know it draws reactions. But when is the last time you called somebody to repentance? Because we need to be a church that does that. And when is the last time somebody has called you to repentance? And you've thought about it. Because we need to be a community that is turning from darkness to light. Consistently calling others to repentance. Amen? Third and lastly, we need to turn others to the light. This is a preliminary trial. It's not real. It's not like official. But they're still trying to gain info from Paul. Before he goes to Rome, they want some, some, something to stick and say, He's on trial because of this. But they really can't find anything. So during this trial, what is Paul still doing? Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. You still see him use. And then he's in verse 26. He says, you know, this stuff didn't happen in a corner. Christianity is not some secret thing. I'm sure you're aware of it. And then he says, Agrippa says, this this is useless. You're not going to convert me in just a conversation. And then Paul says, okay, well, short time or long, I hope not just you, but everybody listening becomes Christian. My goodness. I mean, he's really He never stops, you know. He uses an opportunity to hit a wider audience, wherever he is. And if you look at the flow of his life and his circumstances, it's really not the best times for Paul. If you, follow, if you follow the last few chapters, I mean, he's been falsely accused of crimes. They see him in the temple. They see some other guy. They assume that he took him into the temple together to desecrate the temple. That wasn't true. He's been falsely accused. There's been numerous attempts on his life, a group of men vowed to each other they wouldn't eat until they kill him. He's on trial after trial with the Sanhedrin, with Felix, with Festus, and they all kind of get the vibe, "Eh, this guy could be free, but nobody sets him free. And now he's in another audience where all this pomp and circumstance and kings and blah, 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 and he comes out, and I place myself in here, and I say, would I do what Paul was doing? Because as I, as I kind of recapture what's happened in his life and I see all the injustice and I see I start to get angry and my blood starts to boil and now I get this opportunity and I would say, man, you guys haven't even executed any sense of justice. But he just says, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. I want to turn you from darkness to the light. He uses this platform to talk about the gospel. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Because often, little things can throw me off track. Little things throw us off track. Oh, I can't share my faith. I don't feel good. I didn't get enough sleep, blah, blah, blah. Paul always like I, I got to use this message. I got to use this opportunity to turn others to the light. Why? I, I, I believe Paul felt this urgency, you know, and you probably would too if you had this divine encounter with Jesus. But the truth is, we're all called to turn other people from the light. But he also understood there was an obstacle. In verse 18, it's not like you just go around happily and say, Hey, did you know you're in darkness and under the power of Satan? (laughs) <laughs> would you like to turn you know yeah. but, I, but I use that passage Ephesians 2 says the same thing when we're studying with people that grow up in the church and aren't yet Christians say do you understand right now that you're under the realm of Satan there's no in between here you're either rescued or in need of rescue so Paul understood this man this, this is a big deal it's, it's, it's turning someone away from the grip of Satan's stronghold That is not easy because he has his claws deeply embedded. It requires divine, supernatural assistance of the Holy Spirit to work in people's life to convict them. That's what John 14 and 16 say. The Spirit's convicting people. And then God uses us, combines, and we start to talk to people. But it's God using his Spirit to unleash the grip of people's blindness. Paul understood that and he encountered it almost at every uh, encounter with the Jews. Hey, look, I came from your background. We believe the same thing. Why are you not seeing it? It's right there. His own people, but he encountered this opposition. No, no, we got to put you to death. There's a similar idea that Paul expresses to the church in Corinth. This one's even a little bit more scary. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does that say? Satan is constantly blinding people so they cannot see. Why is that a big deal? Well, they had this urgency to take the gospel, no matter what. The consequence was. Recently in the news, you may or may not have heard about this. This is a missionary, he was 26. His recent death has sparked a lot of controversy. Because he found, when he was young, he found a remote island and North Central Island. He said, I I want to go there and I want to talk to him about Jesus. And This, if if you look this up, this story, it's crazy. But if you look up the North Central Island, this is one of the, it's an enigma. It's one of the most remote places on the planet. They're incredibly hostile to outsiders incredibly hostile this is all public knowledge and they knew this but this guy gets this vision he says man these people got to hear the gospel and so as a as a young teenager he starts engaging in these missionary projects in his high school and learning different languages and learning life saving, you know medical stuff and all this kind of stuff and and then he gets enrolls in this missionary like a combat school basically well they blindfold you drive you out in the middle of nowhere, drop you off, and it's a mock town where you practice sharing your faith to hostile people. That's flat out crazy. Yeah. When I read this, I said, man, yes, teen internship. <laughs> 2019. Get ready. Hey, that, 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 that's a bit extreme, okay? But I was like, man, that dude is urgent yeah. to get himself ready to go preach the gospel. Everything he did from the moment he heard about this island up until he went to the island revolved around that. Every skill he learned, every idea he learned was revolved around, I got to go there and preach the gospel. He arrived there October 21st, somewhere around there, and shortly was killed. Like before he even really, I mean, he, he, he brought supplies for them so they could help them and they, they killed him. And I believe they're still searching for his body, but man, this guy was urgent. Urge, I, it just, just the fact of this like missionary boot camp was, who in the world does that? Who does that? You know what I mean? Oh, I can't share my faith because I'm a little bit afraid. Uh, they, they got their headphones in. Oh, they're my friend. Oh, they work with me, right? It doesn't make sense. Paul, the same way, there's just this urgency to turn others to the light. And, and, that's, and that's what Paul is saying here. Look, that's why at every, every opportunity, I'm saying it. I got to let people know. What are the situations you're most likely to share the gospel in? If somebody brings me up, says, "Hey, we're going sharing to uh, t- whatever." Like, yeah, let's go. What are the situations I'm least likely? If nobody's telling me to, mm-hmm. you know. But I see Paul; <laughs> he's just constantly trying to turn others to the light. I love our church, and we are a bonded family. But we must become more urgent in sharing the gospel. Amen. 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 We must become more urgent in sharing the Gospel. The reality of the Bible is people are blinded by Satan. What does that mean? Satan is the real enemy. Okay? I've had, you know, often they, oh, that was, this person was doing this, and, and then somebody said that to them, and, and then they, 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 they left church. I've heard this many times throughout my 20-some years as a Christian. And yes, we need to grow in our character. Yes, we need to grow in our presentation of the gospel. But the real enemy is Satan. He's the one blinding the minds. I never hear this combination of conversation. Hey, maybe that we could have done something, we could have done something better. But man, Satan really has their foothold in that person. It's always more emphasis on what we did or didn't do. That can't be right. Paul says, Man, there's there's a there's a larger play at work. And it's Satan blinding the mind of unbelievers. And, and we gotta work hard to make sure that our lives are matched to the Bible's doctrine and pour in our lives and love people, but we need to be urgent, and Satan is the real enemy. We're on the same team trying to turn other people to the light. Let's become that church that's more urgent. I know you all feel it, and I know you all know it, but sometimes nobody says it. Well, let's say it together and say, let's be a church that is family. Let's keep that. We're bonded. Amen. But let's become urgent for the lost. Amen. Paul makes this case to Agrippa as we conclude. The Bible makes the same case. It's a message of light from beginning to end. God said, let there be light in the end. There's no need for light sources because God is light. And Paul says this throughout his plea. Hey, the only genuine light is Jesus. Stop emphasizing man. Stop emphasizing structure. Emphasize Jesus. Everything else ends in heartbreak. That's what the Bible says. And we have to always be constantly open to our minds being changed. We have to have something in place that says, am I thinking wrong about this? Because we all say we make mistakes, but not by me. So we all need to be constantly open to repenting. And we all need to have an urgency for the law so that when we have the audience, whether small or great, we can say short time or long. I pray that every one of you can become this community of light to the world. Amen.